Hey everybody, welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm Molly Herford, author of five books on all things cycling related, a writer of most things cycling related, and doer of some things cycling related, and fitness in general related actually. And I'm Peter Glassford, I'm a kinesiologist and professional cycling coach. Uh, I also race mountain bikes, um, and this year we are taking on an Ironman, so we've got lots of multi-sport stuff, so today's podcast is very greedy and selfish and that I got to interview my uh, friend and uh, a guy who grew up in the same area as me, uh, Rich Patey. So he's a triathlon coach. He's helped a lot of people at all levels of triathlon get through their first triathlon and up to and qualifying for Kona. So really good episode, I think. I think whether you want to learn to triathlon or swim or run or bike <laughs> learn to triathlon yeah well that was this is sort of how to triathlon that's, that's true so we go through pretty much sport by sport including triathlon or sorry including transition and then also we talk a bit about core training and how you fit that in we talk about there's a little a lot of good takeaway points here oh man i'm so excited that you guys talk transition because that's always sort of one of my favorite parts of triathlon in a really weird way maybe it's just my like uber organized mindset but like there's just something about like just nailing your transition just you know not a single like movement extra in the transition area you're just in out like it flows smoothly I actually once wrote an article called the zen of transition because I think there's like a mindset you almost need to get into um, and it's just like the most beautiful thing when you nail it actually you might remember, and this is coming up again this year, the Kelso Xterra Triathlon I did. You watched a girl get out of the swim like five minutes ahead of me. And by the time I left transition, she was still in transition. Yeah, I don't remember. It was something about like she had socks, camelback, socks and a socks. camelback or something. I mean, that... hey, I put on socks too, but... No, she was, it was something about her socks, I think. It was just really particular. I don't know. She was folding something or I don't know. It just took a long time. But yeah, I mean, transition can really, especially on shorter course, like Ironman, it matters a little less, but short course, it can definitely make or break. So I'm glad that we talk about that. And speaking of other triathlon things, we also just came from a weekend at Mont Tremblant, not racing the Ironman. Peter was racing mountain bikes, but I got to do some of the mountain bike or mountain bike. I got to do some of the Ironman bike and run courses. It's gorgeous out there. I'm almost a little sad that we're I was about to say I'm sad that we're not doing that one and we're doing BC, but then again, we get to be in Whistler, so never mind. I take back all of my complaints. Yeah. Yeah, it was a good trip to Tremblant. Yeah, really fun. Now we're at the cycling center in Bromont, and if you look at my Instagram later today, or yeah, I guess later today, um, there's going to be a bunch of tweets about this, or tweets and Instagrams about uh, the Bromont Cycling Center here. They have stolen the velodrome from Atlanta from the Olympics, and I find that hilarious. So expect a lot of really nerdy stuff about that. Anyway, let's get on to the episode. Enjoy our chat with Rich. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm very excited today. I've convinced uh, Rich Patey, a professional triathlon coach who I've known for many years and lives and I believe has grown up in the same area here in Orangeville, Ontario. Um, we have him on the podcast today and I'm going to pick his brain about triathlon, how to triathlon, um, and see what we can sort of glean about this. So if you're new to triathlon or wondering triathlon, I think this will be really exciting. Uh, and if you've tried a few or, you know, want to learn to swim or learn to run more, I think there'll be something there for sure. So Rich, thank you for coming on today. 
Well, thanks for having me, Peter. And uh, just just to uh, correct you just one little bit, I did grow up in Midland, but uh, have lived here for the last 17 years. Okay, okay, all right. So you're you're in the area though, but definitely we've, yes. we've occupied that Orangeville area, and it's it's odd our paths did not cross very much, which I guess is maybe what's intrigued me into triathlon and you into mountain bike is that um, they're sort of different worlds in a lot of ways. Well, it, it is. And it's, um, you know, as I sort of wrapped up my triathlon career, I was looking for that new challenge where I, uh, for me, it's all about being um, almost uncomfortable with the goal it, that I'm, I'm not very good at it. I don't have any benchmarks. And uh, so for me, after doing uh, Kona Ironman, um, as my 40th birthday present to myself, I, uh, then needed a new goal. And so, uh, yeah, that's when I reached out to you and to get some help on learning how to ride a mountain bike. Yeah. And I think it, it, coaches sort of go into two categories. There's the ones that understand that if they're going to do something else, you know, they need to get some sort of feedback and help. And it's sort of the smartest way to do it. And then there's other ones who end up being sort of closed and, you know, think they're f- experts in everything, I guess, but well, I, I say this quite often to my clients. I uh, I know what I know, and I also know what I don't know. And uh, I think it's really important to surround yourself with people um, that have expertise in, in, in all different types of areas. Um, and I know the things I really like to know, and I really know the things I don't care to know about. Mm-hmm. And so I surround myself with people that really know those things. Mm-hmm. Now, you spend, I mean, in the realm of triathlon, you spend a lot of time at the pool, I know that was, you know, the last couple of weeks you've been really busy with some uh, competitions and stuff. And I know your kids are really into swimming as well. Would you say like out of the three sports, that's sort of your specialty? Well, it's actually interesting. I wouldn't have said that. Um, although in my coaching uh, career, as it's progressed, um, I have uh, been, I've sort of Actually, it's been more since my kids have uh, started competitive swimming. I've been around that world, and then the local swim club here started to ask me if I'd like to help out and then eventually uh, coach. So actually, it was just this year um, I actually took on actually coaching uh, one of the uh, performance uh, teams. Uh, and so I'm working with a 13 to 16-year-olds uh, um, and really enjoying it. It's a huge commitment, but it's uh, it's awesome. And uh, I'm there anyway because my kids are there, but uh, it's awesome to work with some kids because – most of my coaching career has been working with adults or older, uh, you know, in that late teens, early 20-year-olds uh, with some of the professional athletes I've worked with. So I haven't worked with younger kids and I've really, really enjoyed it. But uh, my beginning of my career, I would have said I'm a run and slash bike coach um, and with a greater understanding because I came to swimming quite late in life. Uh, for the swimming world, I started when I was 14. Um, and so for me, I didn't have a huge background in it. Um, and so it was uh, over years that I became more of a swim expert, um, whereas I was surrounded by people right from the beginning that were quite good uh, cyclists and quite good runners. So I've, I've learned a lot during the, during my time as an athlete and as a coach in those uh, those areas. Okay, good. And that gives us a good – I mean, I like that you sort of evolved as a coach, which is, you know, I think – the nice thing about triathlon, but I think all sports are like that. You sort of, like you say, you know what you know, but over time you, you want to sort of, you know, go out and learn more and, you know, go to different areas and, and, and stuff as well. Did you, uh, you said it was more with your kids and stuff, but do you see with your, your late onset swimmers or your adult onset swimmers, do you see that um, the swim ends up being like a large limiter? I know we've talked a bit about like the bike's a big component time-wise, but 
I have to imagine that the swim ends up kicking a lot of people in the teeth as well. well it is a huge topic of debate. I mean, anyone's sat on a chat forum, a, a triathlon chat forum, will uh, will note that uh, it is this: should I swim more? Should I swim less? You know, drills versus versus pace versus mileage versus you know high intensity. Um, and really, with with the with the older uh, you know people that come to swimming later in life, it really comes down to you know what are you getting ready for? So if it's an Ironman. Okay, the, the fact is, yes, proportionately, it is not a huge amount of your day. But what people d- fail to recognize is the amount of fatigue 3.8K creates. Um, and that's the biggest problem is that if you're not efficient in the water, you're going to expend a ton of energy. And, it, and I use the example sometimes. If you went out and ran um, you know, 15 to 16 kilometers before you started a 100K bike ride, you'd have a lot of fatigue in your legs and your body overall energy. And most people would agree, like, oh, absolutely. But most people don't see it the same way when they talk about swimming because it's just your arms, right? But the reality is even if you're not an efficient kicker, you're still going to be kicking and your body is still working. So you have an hour plus of exercise in before you get on that bike. And so it, you need to have the mileage in you so that that does not uh, fatigue you. So that's one aspect. But the biggest thing is obviously technique. Everybody that's learned anything about swimming knows this. Um, the water is 95% of the effort you're putting out is to fight the resistance of the water. So having better proper technique, having better body position is going to allow you to streamline through that water uh, with greater ease. So just a slight movement of one inch higher or head head one inch lower and getting yourself more horizontal in the water, body rolling, um, it's going to make a big difference. And unfortunately, it's more like golf and tennis than it is like biking and running. So you have to approach it more like you would approach if you were trying to learn how to golf. You're not going to just go out to the driving range, start smashing balls dead straight every time. Um, and if you do, you're fortunate. But uh, for most of us, we have to work on those skills. And and people people think, oh, no, I got to master it. It's not. I mean, even even the uh, you know the Michael Phelps of the world at their end of their career were still trying to master certain skills. So it's a never-ending uh, learning to uh, try to decrease that resistance of the water. Okay, I think that's a great answer. And before we get, I want to continue on to swimming for sure, but uh, I don't think we did justice right off the bat with your own personal um, you know, we talked about your swimming or sorry, your coaching evolution, but you as an athlete, I don't, and I don't know that super well. So I'd love to hear just at 14, you started swimming. Was that because of triathlon or, and then all the way up to that Kona sort of, I guess the crowning achievement of your triathlon, if we can call it that. Yeah. So I started when I was 14, um, actually more on a dare than anything else. Um, uh, well, I, that's not totally true. When I was 13, I, there was a half marathon in my local hometown. Um, and uh, I was too young to enter the race. I told my mom, next year I want to do it. Um, and it came around. Um, and uh, we were like, literally, it was, I think it was like the weekend prior. My mom came back from the YMCA, said, hey, the, the race is next weekend. And he said, great. Went and ran the half the course on the Tuesday, the other half of the course on the on Thursday, and went out and ripped up a half marathon at the age of 14. Um, at that race, uh, and before that, I was not an athlete. I wasn't a track athlete. I wasn't, you know, I, I didn't know I was going to be good at sport. I kind of did everything, though. I was on the volleyball team. I was on the basketball team. I did try to do track. Um, I did run cross country, but I was mediocre. Um, and uh, distance was definitely my thing. Um, and 
at that half marathon, I saw the uh, brochure for a triathlon in three months' time. And I thought, this is a great goal. This is the next goal. So my sister and I challenged each other to go in and do this local race in Midland, uh, which was a 1.5K swim, 45K bike, and a 12K run, I think. So it was a little longer than the typical beginner triathlon that most people get into nowadays. Um, but we you now went out and bought ourselves some road bikes and, and got into it. And I absolutely was horrible at it. I think I did breaststroke for the swim. Um, I, uh, I survived the bike. Actually, I was, I was a decent cyclist right off the bat. And then, um, and I, because I'd run this half marathon, I thought I'd just kill the run, but I actually ended up walk running most of the run. But I thought it was really neat. Um, and I really, really enjoyed it. And so it took off. And each year, um, I got a little bit more serious. So I joined the local swim team to learn how to swim. Um, and uh, I got, by the time I was uh, 18, I went to nationals to try to qualify for the world championships as a junior. Uh, just missed the spot. And then in, uh, 1989, not to date myself, was my first, uh, I was I placed second at nationals uh, and qualified for my first uh, uh, national team and went down to New Zealand for my first world championships. Um, and that really was then what took off the sport for me. So then I turned uh, 20 and I turned pro and uh, raced all over North America pre- uh, pre- predominantly um, and then a little bit over in Europe. Um, tried to collect uh, ITU points to qualify for Sydney. Um, that wasn't panning out so well. So then I made the switch in 2000 to um, to Ironman racing. Uh, did my first Ironman at Ironman Canada in 2000. And uh, at uh, Ironman Lake Placid in 2002, I qualified for my first world championships um, and uh, went there as a professional. Um, had an incredible experience, had my first experience of the incredible heat and wind of Kona. Um, and then, uh, and then family started to take over and work and, and, and I had started my business at early, uh, in 1998. Um, so then at 2000 and, uh, I actually took a little bit of a break from triathlon between 2004 and 2007. Uh, our daughter wasn't well. Um, and, uh, and so in 2007, we actually did a race in Lake Placid called race for kids, which got me back into, um, into racing and Ironman racing. Um, and we raised money for a charity called Pogo, which, uh, um, helps families with kids who have leukemia. Um, and, uh, and then that got my sort of things going again and getting excited about racing. And in 2009, I qualified again for the world championship. So I went back this time as an age grouper um, and had an awesome race. I worked with the great coach, Elisa Bentley. Um, and then um, and then many people, have, if, you, if you Google my name, you've come up with the accident I had in 2010. I was hit in a race at Welland um, and it pretty, I was, I'm fortunate to be alive. I impacted it with a car um, going he was going 81, 80 kilometers an hour one way. I was going 40 kilometers the other way, and uh, I went off his driver's side door. Uh, lucky to be alive. Ended up with a very uh, messed up shoulder, broken arm, broken leg, uh, as you can imagine, tons of road rash. Um, and that sidelined me for a full year. And then it became this goal. How am I going to come back? So uh, 2011, I just tried to start exercising again. 2012, I decided to do the Ontario series, and I actually won that series, um, racing against all the pros, and then um, and then transitioned to qualifying. 
with the goal of trying to get back to Kona by the time I was 40. And so uh, 2013, went to Ironman Arizona, won Ironman Arizona for the uh, 40 to 44 age category and almost went sub nine. It was my goal to go sub nine, but I just came up a little short, went uh, 9.06 and, um, and then um, and then went to Kona for my 40th birthday in uh, 2014. So that, and then hung up the trap on uh, um, uh, gear and, and made the switch over to X-Terra racing and mountain biking racing, which has been an awesome journey as well. That's awesome. I mean, that was awesome to hear. I mean, that's a storied career, I think, for sure. Um, I had no idea. So that's great to sort of gain that perspective, I think. As much as I I always, I don't know if you find this too, but like I almost try and shy away from talking about my own athletic, I guess, accomplishments um, and try and focus on my coaching when I'm talking to clients. Uh, Because to me, I'm like, it doesn't really, it's not really that relevant. But I think a lot of people respect that and do find that at least interesting or at least it adds credentials to it whether it should or not i'm not convinced well it's really interesting because i'm a little bit more removed than you are um i consider my professional career ended in 2003 um and so to me i'm i'm just an athlete like everybody else that goes to the races yes i happen to win my age category quite a bit in triathlon I have done very, very well. I'm a very fast athlete, but I just consider myself an athlete. And that, that is I, the only thing I think as a coach, that what it gives you, a coach that is also an athlete, they have that perspective. I was actually talking to a client today about it, that I, there isn't a workout I give that I haven't done and don't understand the impact of it. And I think that's critical. I'm, I'm actually amazed at people that are you know, giving workouts to athletes, and they're not athletes themselves. Um, and I can't imagine how they understand the the stress load or the impact that it has on that athlete. And they don't have necessarily that art aspect of coaching um, that a lot of athletes do. Um, and they have to go pretty much on the science. Yeah, it's interesting. I know I always respected Steve Neal, who we've had on mm-hmm. as well, and you know, um, also yep. from Orangeville largely. And he, he, I was always impressed. Like some of the workouts we did were crazy, but like he would be in the gym just like slaving away and, you know, doing it obviously relevant to himself and stuff. So there might be slightly fewer reps or slightly fewer, you know, obviously the wattage and stuff would be lower, but he'd be in there just slugging it out. And I'm just like, man, you are crazy, but you know, he did it. So we should be able to, right? If he does it, why shouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, let's get into swimming. I think these will be a little bit more rapid fire here just to break it up. Um, okay. I know you, you, you do use a fair number of tools in the pool. Would you, is there something, you know, as far as drills or tools that you think, you know, as a, as an, let's focus on the adult, like people trying mm-hmm. to do first uh, triathlons. We won't say first Ironmans because I'm probably not a good example. Uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll see how that pans out. Uh, but, uh, yeah. So as far as drills and tools that you would say, like, you know, a, a newer adult swimmer should, should use or get. Well, fins are, are, are one of the must haves. Um, most people don't understand why they use fins, but fins allow you to get better body position. Uh, they're not actually just designed to make you go really fast in the wire, which most people, that's all they do. Um, but it helps you learn to kick properly, especially guys. Most guys don't kick properly at all. Um, and, uh, I find fins really help you get those, the legs up top of the surface. So you actually can get a feel of the water. Also, when you're doing a lot of drills, having fins on makes you allows you to focus on the drill that you're doing instead of, for example, a single arm uh, drill where you're just swimming along with one arm. Most people are so afraid because they think they're going to drown that they're not focusing on what the whole purpose of the drill is. And I always tell people that if you don't understand, if you can't 
focus on the drill, there's no point in doing it. Uh, if it's so awkward for you that you're you're worried about sinking, then that's where the fins can come in. But fins are the number one thing you want to have. Um, most uh, triathletes uh, love their pull boy, um, but they really shouldn't use their pull boy. Um, it's a myth that you you should just use your pull boy all the time because uh, you're a triathlete and you're not going to kick. Uh, that's wrong because your kick is actually your metronome for your stroke. And an endurance swimmer should use at least a two-beat kick. So you should learn to have an efficient kick, not just let your legs dangle behind you. Um, you'll, you'll never have an efficient stroke if you just let your legs float. Uh, the pull boy is what you're pinning between your feet or like your calves. Is that what you're we, putting you're... between your legs? So it's the floaty device that you have. Yeah, you put it between your basically your thighs. Um, most triathletes will sneak it in because it, what it does obviously is it brings your hips up to the surface of the water. So it makes them feel good because they don't have to actually try to get it. And it's fascinating since I've been coaching swimmers. Swimmers hate the pull boy. So people that have grown up swimming and not using a pull boy, they all see it as they. When I tell my swimmers to grab the pull boy and and put their paddles on, they're like they're like almost in tears because they don't want to do the set because they they find it so hard. Whereas most triathletes will be like, "Game on, let's go." Um, I'm definitely one of those people. I'm faster with a pull boy on and my paddles than I am with that I'm not because I have the strength to do it, and the pull boy just allows you to not have to use your legs as much, even though I'm an okay kicker um so i one recommendation i give to people is don't use your pull boy too much give it use it as your recovery but don't use it uh to uh to allow you to go faster in the water and you think without exception you mentioned the kick the uh, a two beat kick so for each stroke you would kick each stroke of your arm you would kick two times yeah, the typical different kick patterns are a two-beat kick, a, a four-beat kick, and a six-beat kick. Most people are never going to do a six-beat kick. Their legs would be exhausted. Um, if you watch a lot of the ITU guys, they'll be in, they'll be in more of a, a four-beat kick because they have to accelerate a little bit more. Um, but definitely in an Ironman-type swim, you're going to try to go to a more of a two-beat kick. Um, and there's a real pattern to that. Um, it can be very awkward for people when they first do it, but again, using fins can really help you because you can feel your kick with the fins on and you're, you got a little bit more mass you're pushing around with those fins on. So you can help sort of learn to when to drive that foot down along with catching the water at the same time. They're not independent, uh, to the arms. The legs are supposed to time the kick with how you're going through the pole. Yeah, and I think that's – is that why – like so no one ever does one beat kick or would you say that's just not fast or why not like one, so one-to-one, one, sort of like one kick for each? They actually – so some people do have a one beat kick. It is very hard. You have to have excellent body position. Now, with a wetsuit on, you could argue it's a, it would be a little bit easier to do a one beat kick. Um, but it's, you, you're going to lose your timing a little bit to sort of accelerate just a little bit into that next stroke. So most people, uh, defer back to a two big kick. Okay. I think w- when I was in, I w- went to rich and got uh, a couple privates and was in there for a clinic and both were very helpful. Um, and we're trying to line up a couple more here. Um, as we get into this Iron Man, the heat of it, um, we're getting close. Yes. Too close. <laughs> <laughs> Running out of time, but we'll see. Um, so all that to say the one thing I did, and I don't know if that's a common thing, but I'm very slow. So I don't know. I've definitely improved on that, but I find once I start trying to kick more than that, just like boggles my mind. Um, is it, is it common that people have a very slow stroke rate? 
so very common because you're thinking so much, right? So a newer swimmer is always going to have what we call a slower. It's just like cycling, mm-hmm. a slower RPM. Most if you if for, for if most of the people that are listening are cyclists, they'll they'll relate back to this in the sense that most swimmers are coming in and they're pedaling like they pedal their bike. They're swimming at a stroke rate of about sixty, eh, fifty to sixty RPM. Um, and in most of them actually are 50 to 40 RPM. Um, and so it's really slow. The optimum is a little bit different. Well, it's a little bit like uh, road cycling in that there's a range. Longer levers are going to be a little bit uh, slower turnover. Shorter levers are going to be a little faster. Um, and in, in swimming, we want to have somewhere between sort of a 60 to 70 in an open water uh, stroke. So uh, open water, we want to have a little faster turnover because it's choppy water and we're getting bumped and we need to accelerate a little bit more. Uh, in the pool, so the, the true pool swimmer will want to swim with a lower stroke rate um, because they're just you know going up, up and down the black line. So they're not, they, they want to find a nice steady effort Whereas triathlon's not steady at all. You're constantly having to shift gears, move around people, speed up to maybe get on some feet. Um, and so a faster turnover will have those interruptions, the bumps, the waves, that kind of thing have less impact on you. So you want to learn to swim with a little bit faster turnover. And basically a 10% improvement would be really, really good. Awesome. Um, as far as pacing in a, a distance will sort of focus maybe on half iron and iron uh, is there something like how do how do people go into that you know assuming they've done preparations and stuff is there preparatory workouts or or how do you gauge that you, you mentioned that it's a very erratic sort of surging effort in the, in those distance events is there is there um, a method to I, the madness so in swimming what i do is i have uh, i so my three typical workouts I give my Ironman athletes and 70.3 athletes is I'll have my skill day where the, the, the primary focus on that workout is, is drills and skills. So they'll get their drills. And one little point about drills, when you're doing a drill, make sure you do like 25 meters focusing on that drill. Most people can't focus more than 25 meters. So don't do 50s and 100s of the same drill. 25 meters of a drill and then then come back and swim. So you actually want to integrate whatever you were just working on, whether it was body body position, whether it was the kick, whether it was hand position, whether it was the catch, whether it was your recovery, you then want to integrate that into the next 25 where you're swimming. So that's one workout. The other workout is obviously your your speed workout where you you know just like going to the track or going out and doing your your VO2 max hill repeats on the bike or whatever. Um, you want to have uh, you you want to make sure that you are focusing in on um, the high intensity and really working there. But then you have, um, you want to have an, it, your endurance swim. And in the endurance swim, um, we really want to have both the length of the swim. So whether it's 3.8 K or whether it's uh, 2 K, um, you want to also have, uh, some change up in pace in there. So one of the workouts I'll give someone is, um, you know, 38 times a hundred now might, might seem really boring to some people, but, what I do is you'll have you know one medium, one easy, one hard, um, and go th- keep going through that rotation, uh, or have the pace change, pace times change, where they're getting a little bit more rest and a little bit less rest. Um, so it sort of mimics that change up of pace, um, so that the, it's not just a nice steady swim. They actually have to mimic that. Okay, I got to go harder. I got to go easier. Um, or we'll have them if it's a straight swim, say a full two k swim. I'll have them doing. Um, 75 at a nice steady pace, 
but then they got to pick it up um, for 25. The other big one that most people totally forget to, to do is you have to do, um, you, you need to do uh, sighting. So what I challenge people when they're doing any of their endurance stuff is once per length, you got to lift your head and work on your sighting and, and learn how to sight properly so that that's not a major pause in your swim stroke. Um, because if you do all this training only to swim off course, um, you really can kill a lot of time and, and use a lot more energy. That makes sense. And something that I've been sort of wondering about in the last little bit, like how much different is it in open water in the heat of the, the race, um, you know, versus swimming in a busy lane where you have people coming directly at you, um, especially given I'm not super confident in being super straight. Like I, I'm generally looking ahead, but is it more in that, like you almost have to come up to like a breaststroke type of height with the head? So you want to bring it to chin. Um, I actually always got it to the point where I could just lift my eyes. Now, I've always been spoiled because for the vast majority of my competitive career as a triathlete, I've been near the front. Um, really, the the I2 races, I always say, were the greatest insight for me because it was the only races where I was really in the, the thick of the pack and really getting beat up, which is more like what most age groupers experience in a half Ironman or Ironman. Um, and you have to lift your head definitely a little bit more because there's a lot more splashing around you. It's where having good sighting points, much, you know, lining up the buoys when you're pre-swimming a course, lining up the buoys and finding a larger piece of land behind the buoy so that you, you're not trying to find just that little orange buoy, you know, that's a kilometer away. You're actually trying to find, you know, you're, you're just to the left of the mountain peak behind because you've already sighted that out that that's where it's going to be. Um, that's what a trick I always use was trying to find those higher points of land. Um, but the other thing is, uh, finding that pattern, your stroke to which you're going to lift your head. So I always found as I was about to breathe to my right, I'd always just lift my head as I was starting my stroke. And then, um, as I went and then turn it to take that breath. So I always found that was the most effective way for me. If you Google sighting and trap on, you'll get many different versions. Uh, and you got to find the version that's going to best suit you, uh, which way you want to breathe to. But the most important thing is being able to lift your head the least you need to, because you're actually throwing the brakes on every time you lift your head. Mm -hmm. So the less you have to lift your head to get the sight you have, you need the better. The other big thing is when you're swimming, you were talking about being that how chaotic it is. Quite often, you need to lift your head up and see what's going on because if you've got four people around you, one's hitting you on the left, one's hitting you on the right, you're, someone's tickling your feet and you're following someone's feet, you can think the world is around you. Like you truly will feel like you have like 10,000 people swimming around you. But if you just lift your head for a second, there might be absolutely beautiful water to swim in like two meters away. But it's you're in such a small little world when you're swimming you think everything is is just chaos and uh, quite often tell triathletes take a second three strokes look up look around see if there's a better place to be swimming um you don't want to just try to look for clear water um because it's not faster um but if you're getting beat up then you want to try to find some clear water but getting it swimming in the bubbles is always faster right okay would you recommend like I've gone about 3032 like is it worth doing the full distance like I oh, guess yeah. from a confidence perspective but I mean there's a lot of you know certainly bike events where people don't end up just cuz it's so time but I mean it's not hopefully it won't be that time dependent but it's going to be a a 90 minute probably investment 
Um, I think that um, I think yeah, it's because of the time investment in, in comparison to your 180k bike ride and your 42k run. Yeah, you you should absolutely go to four four plus kilometer swims, um, especially with where you live. You have access to all kinds of great water, whether it's down in Georgian Bay or some of the smaller lakes I know that are around you. Mm-hmm. Um, you definitely want to take advantage of those because um, and getting some longer swims in um, or coming down here. C3 has that uh, quarry where you've got a kilometer loop. makes it super easy to get a 4K swim in with buoys. Um, and so um, that's it's just uh, it's it, I think it's a really great value because you want to understand take your heart rate monitor, you want to understand what are the effects. Like, it's amazing when you go do a 4K swim, you come out and like, take note of how tired you are. Um, because, you know, later in the day, you're like, whoa, I'm kind of wiped. And you need you need a few of those swims in there. I mean, most of our competitive guys, guys that are trying to qualify for Kona, I mean, they're doing four to 5,000 meters of workout every time they're in three times a week. Right. Now, they're, it's a workout, it's not a straight up swim, but still, they're putting in that kind of volume. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, good. I think we're through that. So let's get to the stuff I understand slightly more and I'm <laughs> more cocky about. And you can knock me down a little bit. Um, for the bike, is there a, is there like a textbook benchmark workout that you believe is is sort of a good indicator of fitness? Well, this actually came from my good friend Jasper Blake, who you also might know, um, who helped me work, who worked with me both in uh, well, actually, in, uh, to get ready for Kona in 2013, and then. Uh, getting ready for 2014. Um, in my big final build, um, I would do a seven-hour ride um, on the Wednesday, um, just a very aerobic ride, pace, wattage, none of that mattered. It was just be out for seven hours. Um, it was just it was more of a mental game than anything. But then two days later, I had to do an Ironman, so 108k at race effort, putting the head down, minimal stops. Um, but now you have that fatigue in your body. And I always found if I could go do that ride, I knew I was ready because in Ironman, it's not good enough to think you can hold the Watts you want to hold for 180 K. You need to be able to do it with tired legs because the reality is you still need to get off and run a marathon. Um, and most people are always shocked. Like they, well, most people are shocked when I tell people they should do that. Um, because they'll read all these things. No, no, just long, slow distance. Do your do your interval training. You'll be fine. But if you want performance out of your ride, you need to be able to go. You should be able to go and ride 180k at the effort you want to do. And what I have found in the last 17 years of working with Ironman athletes, you, most people will end up averaging the same pace they average on most of their Sunday long rides or Saturday long rides. Um, mo- very few go faster, and if they do, it's normally because it's, they're taking up their stops um, that they if they're living in an uh, urban area and they put the race wheels on. But really, the effort level doesn't really change that much. And it's because unless you're a high-performance athlete, you can't go that much harder than you're every day. I mean, 70% of FTP is typical of most age group athletes. They'll read about trying to go 80%, but very few people are successful at that. Yeah. And so that's what I was sort of thinking. Like, do you use heart rate or is everyone you're working with? Um... Yeah, we actually, I, we use both. So yeah. wattage is, your, wattage is your, um, your benchmark that you're trying to maintain. Normalized wattage is really what you're looking at. Um, I always have my, I, well, I used to have my 
uh, computer on three second power, so it was a little bit more smooth. Um, and uh, we were always trying to, you know, keep wattage within a 20, 20 watt window with obviously common sense with steep hills. You, just, you have to just control the effort, but you have to get up the up the up the up and and over. Um, the but what you want to do is you don't want to chase the wattage. So in a race like Ironman Canada or like Placid, you know, when you have these long downhills, you're not you're obviously your wattage is just going to drop right off. Well, if people are like, oh, I got a hold within 20 watts, it's wrong. You want to keep the effort there. So um, that's where heart rate comes into play. So on those, even those gradual downhills that are maybe only 500 meters or a kilometer, you're then watching your heart rate. So I always correlated my my Ironman effort, which was the wattage. I also had what my heart rate should be. Um, and then also that helps because... If you're in Ironman Canada at 60 degrees, your heart rate's the response, the, the demand on your body is one thing. So you know, okay, I can average 150 heart rate, great. But all of a sudden now you go to Kona, and that same effort, that same wattage that you're going to try to hold, all of a sudden your heart rate's 160. Well, it's all great that you know back home you could hold that wattage, but now all of a sudden, if you're if the response on your body, if the demand on your body is 10 beats more you're not going to make it. And then eventually your core temperature is going to go, go through the roof and you're going to blow up. Um, so heart rate becomes your uh, thermostat, for, for lack of a better word, on how you're, what's the demand on your body so that you don't redline it and you don't end up blowing yourself up. Because Ironman is a day of patience and um, you don't need to do anything special in an Ironman to do really, really well. You have to, again, go out and be able to do what you do on your long swims, you need to go out and do what you can do on your long ride. And if you can run your uh, Sunday long run pace, the pace you can chit chat with your buddies on, you will have an exceptional race. And in the averages, most people run 15 seconds per kilometer slower than their Sunday long run pace. So it's a day, it's not a day of having to super perform you just need to be able to execute and, and manage the day and that's where heart rate comes in you're managing how your body's responding i like that some really good answers there um so aside from like would you say that the volume to you on the bike i'll ask this about the run as well but you mentioned sort of the seven hour and 180k like once you're getting like right into that that's like the final month like that would be like your one last big build like very specific phase right yes so now ahead of that maybe in the two to three months before like are you do you things like say 100k tts or like what is the so I, I typically, well, I use it, I use a, well, for most people, I use a traditional four week block, um, you know, three week build, one week down. I use a typical, um, you know, what ride run. I like to keep my run close to the, to the long ride so that you're, you're always running on tired legs. I never believe you should run on, on non tired legs, but you have to build that tolerance up. Um, but, uh, as far as biking is concerned, it, the honest answer is it comes down to the client. Um, I've had clients that have raced incredibly well, you know, podium in their age category at Ironman, uh, gone to Kona, where they literally only do their long ride um, on the on the Saturday because work schedule during the week is so limited that we're we're doing like little 30, 40 minute bike rides where we we literally get on 15 minute warm up, 15 minutes of high intensity work. Uh, and then 15 minute cooldown because that's all we have time for. 
Um, so their mileage, their weekly mileage is super low, but we always built up that long uh, ride. So um, I build up to that 10 week out window. And that's the, I call this that, or a lot of our athletes are just moving into it right now. I call that the, the, the you're in the red zone now and you, you've got to be, um, everything's got to be perfect in that 10 weeks to race day to really maximize your, your performance. Uh, and so when you're talking three months out, everything I'm doing with my clients is building you and getting you ready for that last 10 weeks. So if you go out and do a hundred mile time trial, you know, 16 weeks out from the race, it's, it's really kind of, it's great to pat yourself on the back, but it doesn't have a whole lot to do with how you might do 16 weeks later. Uh, it means you're on track. But it's it's not uh, it's not favorable. I also have clients that have we do more of the traditional volume. Uh, we're worried more about the weekly volume than just the long ride. Uh, and also, I have some clients that just don't handle volume well at all. So we have to really keep rides shorter but more frequent. So it really comes down to what the client needs. I think the biggest thing that any athlete needs to ask themselves is what are you strong at and what are you weak at. Um, and you need to work on those weaknesses if you're limited in time. I think that's an important takeaway for sure that a lot of times people, they work on their, their strengths when they're limited on time. Yeah. Um, okay. That's good. I think the other questions I had, uh, for bike would be, is there anything as far as aero accessories? Like I have a tri bike. Would you recommend anything else? Or I show up in my mountain bike kit or like what's, what's, <laughs> what's worth it, I guess is what I'm asking. Cause I really, I don't see myself doing Iron Man as a career. Um, well, let alone maybe even triathlon. Um, for many people, they may have seen the wind tunnel test done by um, by Specialized. They had some fun uh, a couple of years ago where they did all kinds of different tests with, with triathletes. It was actually quite funny, you know, shaved legs, beard, no beard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they also did the helmet. Uh, they did the disc wheel, the the the, the aero wheels, um, and uh, you know the tri suit versus the the, the basic kit, um, and so. Some great points. Now, you got to look at the course you're, you're racing on. Um, obviously, a disc wheel is always fast, um, except for uh, if you got, you know, mega crosswinds um, and it's going to blow you off the course. But otherwise, it is the fastest back wheel. Uh, there's just no question. People are like, oh, it's climbing. Well, most days, the disc wheels are so light that they don't really hurt you for what they gain everywhere else. Um, even on an Ironman Canada course, um, I think it's a great wheel. Now, there's a lot of great deep dish wheels as well, um, and wheels make a big difference. But arrows is one thing, but the hub is the other, right? I mean, you can have a really awesome arrow wheel, but uh, if uh, if the hub is uh, cheap, then uh, you've kind of wasted it because the rolling resistance is just as important. Um, but uh, also understanding a wheel is not a wheel, so just because it's a certain depth of aerodynamics does not necessarily mean it's going to be great for you. Uh, a flat aero wheel will get blown around a lot more than more of the bulge uh, aero wheels. Um, so, you, you know, more like a zip wheel would be um, a better wheel for those that are a little more novice um, because you're not going to get blown around as much. Um, and uh, whereas the flat, like Shimano type wheels, they're they're really hard to control with a crosswind. Um, so if you got to come out of aero, then um, all of a sudden those aero wheels become uh, not so important. The aero helmet is huge, actually. Um, and uh, But again, you can wear an aero helmet, but if you're going to not stay in the aero position, it's kind of, you know, <laughs> defeats the purpose of it all. Um, and then also what they've learned is if you keep your head, if you keep lifting your head and not keep your head down, 
uh, that also is uh, uh, can hurt that aerodynamics as well. So um, aero helmet's good, but you have to also learn how to wear it and how to keep yourself in that right position. Um, but yeah, they're, they're, they they do make a big difference. But again, it comes down to what you're, you know, what's important to you on the day. I mean, a nice set of uh, Zip 404s, you know, a very basic race wheel, um, will pretty much do the trick for 90% of the people. Yeah, there's maybe two or three minutes to be gained by other the fan, more fancier stuff. But really, um, if you're going to start worrying about that, I don't want to see you walking through the aid stations. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, the world-class bases. Well, what I was getting at, I was, I was saying, I'm not sure if you caught it, I was... Um, the, the typically the, the the guys they spend hours looking at um, the the disc wheel the the right frame the the right aerodynamics the the aero bottle in the perfect position they know exactly what wattage they want to hold um, but uh, and they know exactly how they're going to execute the 180k they got plan A B and C and they and they go and, and quite often they kill it and they actually kill it quite often too much because they overestimate what they actually can do. The attention to the run is, is is almost non-existent. You know, the goal is kill the bike and just do whatever you need to do on the run, and it just baffles me. I mean, most guys, you can't even if you ask them what running shoes they're going to wear, they don't they don't know, but they can tell you exactly what tire and what tire pressure they're going to run, um, which is always amazing to me. Um, so it, it, I'd like to see a little bit more attention uh, for most athletes, especially novice athletes, to the run because the runs where the run where the race gets ruined, not the bike. I mean. A good bike and a bad bike for most people is 15 minutes right. over 180k. Um, whereas a good and bad uh, run <laughs> can be hours. Right. Yeah. No. And I I saw a guy did a Ironman on a fat bike, and I was like, okay, good, because I was debating doing it on like my 29er mountain bike, and like, oh yeah, I'll be the first guy. And then I was like, oh, the guy did it on a fat bike, so I mean, I'm gonna be. Just, what so there was a guy back in the day they called it retro boy i think they've actually banned it now but he did it on a banana bike banana Ooh. seat bike with the big handlebars and the whole bit and he wore jean shorts although his one high tech thing and wearing the jean shorts in the swim is he's he did sew up the pockets but he wore jean shorts <laughs> in the swim threw a tank top on did the whole bike uh with the bit and then he ran i think he ran in flip-flops or something ridiculous like it was and he did a respectable time, like 12 hours. Like, it was truly ridiculous. That's funny. But, yeah, single speed, too. I think. Anyway, <laughs> we digress. Okay. Let's get into the run, I think. Um, I like you, you You mentioned sort of, I think, that long run pace. That would have been sort of what I figured. And so I've been doing some a bit of speed work and stuff, but mostly just sort of building up tolerance for distance and pounding. Um, and, and it's been good. I've been seeing the sort of pace that I'm comfortable talking at is, you know, dropping and going back to what I remember when I did a bit of marathon and stuff. Um, it's early season. So the key thing you asked about heart rate, the key thing with that is pay very close attention right now. Um, as it's like 28 degrees out right now is that what all of a sudden sudden change. And I know I'm going to have a million emails today. Like, Oh my God, I died in my run today because of the heat. Um, you want to pay attention on the cooler days to your heart rate as you're going and say, okay, my heart rate is 140, 140, 143, 144. All of a sudden, the hot days come, and boom, all of a sudden, the heart rate goes up. You cannot trick your body and make it do things that it, it, it can't do. So you have to slow down in the heat, and you can speed up in the cool temperature. For all those that were watching the two-hour, uh, trying to break the two-hour marathon, 
I mean, they wanted the optimum temperature was something right around, I think it was nine degrees or whatever it was. Um, and yeah, that's the optimum. Everything above that is going to slow your performance. And so for us as traffic, we're getting dehydrated. If you know, this doesn't mean anything to us Rich. because pace changes okay. everywhere like that. So um, it's a great tool to look at. But at the end of the day, it's what, what's happening internally in your body because people get fixated. I need to run five-minute kilometer pace. But if it's 30 degrees day, no one's going to run five-minute pace. Um, so everyone, the smart people will slow down. Like one of my clients qualified for Kona in uh, Los Cabos uh, two years ago or last year. Last year, um, he, he ran you know, a few weeks, about two months earlier in Muskoka, ran a five-minute K pace. Uh, great race. He won the race by running a 540 two months later. Hmm. But I was on the phone texting his wife, telling him, I was like, tell him to slow down. Um, and because I knew it, there was no way, because I was watching the pros that were ahead, they're all falling apart. None of them are even running close to what they can run. So I knew that the heat was just way too. So your climate, you have to be able to adapt to that in climate. So in training, really good to, uh, to control that and, and watch it and learn, learn about yourself. But the one thing I'll say about the long run in uh, Ironman is it's all about sustainability. Um, how long you can sustain a nice, easy pace for uh, will, we'll, again, give you an amazing race. It will not be your cardiovascular system that will shut you down in an Ironman. It will be your quads. It'll be your hamstrings. It'll be a cramp. It's the fatigue of your body that is your limiting factor, whether it's nutritional or whether it's training aspect. And that's where the gym comes in and, and the core training and all that kind of stuff. But um, how well your body stays together is really the most important thing in the run. Awesome. And they said even with that two-hour uh, attempt on the marathon with you know the best marathon runners in the world, that's even the muscular, like that's what they said dr basically dropped. Um, and they still don't know 100%, right? We don't understand physiology as much as we might even think we do. Um, but they said it, that's why sort of that threshold that they could run at for the first hour, you know, drop just a little bit even. But again, the percentages add up and they missed that by, you know, whatever it was, 25 seconds. But they said... It was indeed just that muscular damage, and they, they couldn't keep it going. I think as humans, we want to we want to put everything into science and everything into math. But at the end of the day, there's so much art. I mean, think of what's going on. Like we we asked a guy to try to go one fifty nine fifty nine on that day at that time. Um, a gazillion things have to go right internally in his system, even if he's capable of doing it. Um, and if you can imagine the, the the things that had to go right there, that's the art. I mean, try to figure all that out is next to impossible for sure. Nice. Um, and that's and that's the same with Iron Man. If you want to figure out exactly, if, if first off, if someone tells you exactly how you're going to race Iron Man, <laughs> that's the problem. I mean, there is no no one finishes an Iron Man saying, "That's it, nailed it, perfect." Right. <laughs> Everyone go finishes going. Yeah, I could have done that. I could have done that. And that's the reason why they sign up again and again and again. So as far as run workouts, is there anything, again, as far as benchmarks? Um, you know, I, I would yeah, imagine I think you're strength, not saying I think full marathon. More, yeah, I think, well, so if you're trying to be high performance, if you're trying to be, you know, you're trying to get to Kona, uh, you're trying to win your age category, I think, the, I think that there is a lot of value to uh, both the weekly mileage as well as, um, going long, um, 
you cannot expect to perform over 42 kilometers with that impact if you're only doing 30 kilometers of running. I think the ultra world has proven to us our bodies can handle uh, 42K of running. Um, the myth of the days that you can't run that far without falling apart is wrong. You need enough time to build the mileage up. Um, but I, most of my clients that I want to perform at Ironman, I have them running up to and above 42 kilometers. Uh, a lot of people poo-poo that, um, but uh, but I I disagree 100%. I mean, the biggest thing is, is that, like I said, that sustainability. Uh, they need to know they can run the distance and they need to be able to go out and do it. Um, and I, their bodies are totally capable of doing it if you give yourself enough time and if you give yourself enough rest in between those long runs. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you're trying to perform and recover, I mean, that's, you you need to be that thing, right? Like your race day needs to be every day almost not that you're going to run it every day, but yeah, absolutely. And the other biggie is, is, is strength. So I actually think strength is more important than speed. Um, again, that sustainability, um, I think, doing more hilly intervals. Don't go to the track just, just just so that you can look cool at going fast around. I think, you know, going on and running some hills for your intervals. So do your four times four minutes intervals, but do them on some hills where you've got to both pound up and pound down. Um, I think that's really important. Do you think downhill runnings could be, if you were time crunched, just to like really basically get the eccentric loading and sort of get sore basically? Uh- Absolutely. I think downhill running is an underestimated, underused uh, tool. I mean, we use it a ton for our Boston athletes. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, anyone that's run Boston, they'll all tell you, oh my gosh, my quads were sore in this race and any other race. Why? Well, because you run the first 10K all downhill. Um, it's not because of the Newton Hills. If you ask most people that are trained well, they run the new hills like it's easy. Um, they're not really that bad. It's just where they are. It's the downhill running in that first 10K. Learning to run downhills is one thing. For So for anyone that has a race that has downhills in it, it's critical to knowing how to run downhill properly. But also, you you bang on, that eccentric loading is awesome. Like People talk about plyometrics. Do you think I should do plyometrics? I'm like, are you a runner? They're like, yeah. You already do plyometrics, right? That's what running is. Right. It's a plyometric activity that we repeat over and over and over again. So yeah, just downhill running is a more aggressive version of that. Okay. Um, and then you mentioned core and strength. Is there sort of a, a basic thing you do with that or something that you, you should be doing in your mind? Yeah, I, I typically start very basic. Um, you know, your gen, your general uh, gym, full body uh, strength training program for most of my clients starting out. Um, that then translates into more, once we have that base in there, translates into more of a functional approach um, through the middle of their season that they'd be just finishing up that right now. And as we get into the competition season, definitely more uh, speed velocity uh, is introduced into their training where we're doing more plyometric work, more band work for swimming um, and, and building that, uh, trying to take that strength and create power. Okay. That's a big topic in its own. So we'll, we'll leave that one for now. <laughs> we could but talk all- but yeah. I mean, I think just the message that it's not just swim, bike, run. Um, and even would you say that even if people had to give up some time on the bike or running that, that they should keep that in or, or how would you do that? Yeah, I think especially especially for us older athletes, um, I think the the gym, it's one of those things. I was the young punk kid, um, you know, started my coaching when I was in my 20s. And, uh, you know, I didn't understand this aging body thing yet. Now in my 40s, uh, I can look back on it and go, oh, yeah. The, the world of the gym has a great part to do with because again 
why that client doesn't succeed. What, what's the reason? So I think when I sit and listen to all these clients have their successes and their failures, uh, we look at why did they fail? Um, you know, whether it's cramping, whether it's uh, a strain, whether it's um, uh, a knee giving out, um, a lot of it comes back to stabilization and a little bit more time spent in the gym could be just what the body's asking as opposed to going out and doing more laps around a track, constantly hurting that right hip. So it's, uh, it's, it's, um, yeah, sometimes our training, we have to look at our strengths and maybe back off a little bit and put a little bit more time into our weaknesses. Okay. I think we've covered most stuff, Rich. I know we're getting on the end of it here um two topics one transition zone is there anything should i do full sims is there anything that you can suggest even a, even a goal time i guess is the other thing i'm wondering about in transition yeah <laughs> so in transition the key is to keep moving not sit down you don't you want to keep that blood flow going but uh at the same time in an ironman it's all about just getting in and out um efficiently and then changing up to make sure you're comfortable you know like if you're not if you're not stressed, if you're not trying to dial in a window that's five minutes, you know, difference, um, change. Um, wear something in the swim that you can easily take off afterwards after you take your wetsuit off, and put on bike shorts and a and a tight uh, uh, kit because that's what you're most comfortable. That's what you're used to wearing. You want to be hardcore? Absolutely. Have your one piece suit and away you go, and you're going to be real quick through transition. You're not going to do anything. You're just going to grab your helmet, shoes, and away you go. Um, I think for anyone that is trying to get performance out of their training, learning to have your uh, shoes on your bike is a must. Um, you just these transitions are so massive nowadays. You do not want to have to run in your cycling shoes, um, and uh, and if you have to, I often quite tell people to carry them. You can run a lot faster in bare feet than you can um, uh, with your uh, well, with the, with your cleats on, um, and. Uh, but I think uh, comfort is everything. Um, you know, again, my friend Jasper Blake, he used to fully change. He used to wear a full cycling kit um, uh, on the bike and then full-on change into running shorts and a tank top. And he's two-time Ironman Canada champion. So, um, yeah, it's uh, – and numerous times on the podium. So uh, it didn't hurt him, that's for sure, because, again, giving up that 30 seconds it's going to take, if that, to put on a pair of shorts, um, you know, if you're not – worrying about chafing and all that kind of stuff and you're comfortable there it's one less thing to think about i was gonna say a, a saddle sore at hour three is going to be a lot more it's gonna be worth 30 seconds come hour five i did do my first ironman in a speedo nice <laughs> nice <laughs> to be young yes to be young again um so last question this is a biggie for me because i'm terrified of swimming uh, goggles. I'm still having an issue mm-hmm. with them fogging. And so my concern for long ones, again, I've done about 3000 meters just over that pretty steady, um, and just stopping periodically to let, like sort of let fog out, I guess, or, or sort of re-wet. What's the tactic in my, I'm using still those bigger goggles, which maybe is something that I need to try and step <laughs> away from. But so what's the advice? So definitely a more competitive goggle is going to have a better anti-fog in them. So something like a Vorgi uh, missile, a um, bit better lens in it. Um, the, it the, the plastic is a little harder. Um, the anti-fog agent's a little bit better um, versus those plasticky, cheap, cheap goggles. You do get what you pay for a lot of times in goggles. Um, so buying a little bit higher-end goggles is a little bit better. Um, that being said, the... 
the, the more rubberized goggle is uh, is nice if you do get smashed in the face. It's a little bit uh, it's a little bit less. Uh, uh, well, it hurts their hand less, so maybe it's not such a good thing on that front. Um, but from a fogging perspective, first off, get a new set of goggles two weeks out from the race, same ones you've been using, uh, and don't touch them. Try them on a few times, wear them for a few times, but do not go and touch the inside of the goggles. That's one great thing. Everyone puts their fingers in there. Every time you get in there, you're you're ruining the inside of the goggle and scratching it up and, and decreasing the anti-fog agent in there. Uh, so that's one. Um, one of my clients has actually started using this spray called Spitz. I think it's called Spit Splits Splits. I'm not sure. You have to oh, you have to Google it. Um, and he swears by it. He thinks it's amazing. I haven't used it. Um, my Vorgie missiles, I rarely ever fog up, um, and so I don't really have. I mean, obviously, there's the old fashioned spit in them, and, and away you go. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's. Uh, I think. One, if you've had goggles for a long period of time, maybe get the plan to purchase those new ones really close. That that'll be that's step number one. Step number two is uh, is try try something like the Spitz. I've heard other fancy ones like put it, uh, you know people have tried um, conditioner, hair conditioner. Hmm. Uh, supposedly that's supposed to cut down. I didn't find it helped at all. Uh, like there's it could a be lot blurry. of blurry. It, yeah, it's uh, you're supposed to rinse it off, but it leaves a film that's supposed to help it. I just found it just made everything worse. So. Okay. Um, you can Google all kinds of different tricks, but uh, at the end of the day, I think a nice new pair of goggles is really the way to go. And at the end of the day, if you start fogging up to the point where you really can't see that far, it again, it is two seconds to one finger in, scratch it, scratch it, other finger in, scratch it, scratch it, and away you go, right? It's really in the grand scheme of an Ironman and a 7.3. If you're not out there worrying about winning the race, it's really not that big a deal. Okay. Rich, thank you for your time. Uh, HealthyResults.com, or how can people find you? Yeah, HealthyResults.ca is our website. Um, Yeah, myself and uh, my two other coaches, uh, Alex Vanderlinen and Angela Quick, uh, we're uh, we're busy getting into the race season, so it's going to be great. And uh, again, thanks for having me. No problem. Um, Is there anything as far as camps, clinics um, coming up? I know you said you're not doing a ton right now, but people can watch for – you do – uh, triathlon and Xterra camps uh, most winters. Um, yep, we so- um, we have our we have a few uh, camps that we're going to be posting up on our website very soon. About uh, one in Lake Placid, um, another one in uh, up in the, your your region up towards Collingwood, um, and we have our monthly uh, swim clinics here in Orangeville, um, and uh, and then uh, our big uh, famous camp in uh, Las Vegas, which is both for Xterra athletes as well as Ironman and 70.3 athletes, which we always have near the end of June, early uh, April. We just sort of move it around to avoid Easter. Oh, okay. So you have one in May and June as well, but uh, you do one in the winter too, right? Uh, in Vegas? Oh, sorry. Actually, I meant to say actually March, uh, March and uh, <laughs> okay. yes. Perfect. Um, all right. Yeah. And I think those are all great options. You know, anyone who's curious about triathlon and stuff, those camps would be fun. If you want to try and learn to swim, it was very welcoming, really great people there. So I recommend that for sure. Rich, thanks again. We'll talk to you and be in contact about sessions here in the next little bit. Cheers. Consummate athletes like you know that proper nutrition is super important, but that finding the right balance can be super complicated. Fuel Your Ride is a comprehensive guide to performance nutrition for athletes that provides all the tools that you'll need to customize a unique nutrition plan to achieve maximum performance. This book teaches riders from everything from what to eat on race day to how to avoid the dreaded bonk to how to lose weight while consuming enough nutrients and 
how to power hard during your training. Fuel Your Ride combines the expert advice of numerous nutritionists, coaches, and professional cyclists to present a simple, clean, and whole foods approach to eating complete with easy-to-follow recipes that include delicious and nutritious, vegetarian, vegan, and gluten-free options, among many others. Visit consummateathlete.com backslash shop to find out more info or to buy the book, and we'll include a link in the show notes as well. Thanks so much for listening to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. We would love if you would head over to iTunes and leave us a review. And while you're there, consider subscribing. We'd also love to connect over at Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Molly J. Herford and Peter is at Peter Glassford. If you have ideas or questions from today's podcast, or you just want to browse some of the show notes and past shows, you can also check us out at consummateathlete.com. Thanks, guys, and we will see you next time.